Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. This morning's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 to 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, For you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. Good morning, and uh, welcome to Lincoln Square. I echo uh, Joe over here. It's it's very emotional for us to... uh, to see you all and be back in this space, um, both live streaming and in-person worship. Uh, we're glad that you're with us, and in a lot of ways, this is the first time we are doing this in, no, not in a lot of ways, this is the first time we're doing this in seven months. Um, uh, and this has been only made possible because of all the many people who have been working tirelessly behind the scenes. You know who you are. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We couldn't do this Uh, without you. A lot of folks learning new skill sets all on the fly. Um, Thank you as well for our congregation for your patience um, and care during this time. We know this worship experience is different than um, what we used to have, and it'll be like this for a while. Uh, At the same time, we really do believe that even though it's less than ideal to do this in mass, this is uh, still the embodied church getting to come together and often curses can be blessings as well. But the important thing, whether you're watching from home or you're here in the auditorium, is that we're getting to do this together. We're getting to be the embodied church together. Uh, You are physical and tangible, and so is this church. And so to be able to actually make up this church and do this together as a family scattered, yet still together. Uh, Next week, we hope to have even more space Uh, So consider if this might be an option for you as well. A number of years ago, a sociologist named Christian Smith 
in his book, Souls in Transition, uh, he proved, I think he proved that individuals, in general, this is how we think about life, we, if you boil everything down, we're optimistic about ourselves, and yet we're pessimistic about the world. And this is, he, he, he kind of showed this, that we're comfortable saying, hey, I'm going to be okay, but the rest of the world out there, eh, I'm not so sure. What's ironic about that is that <laughs> other people are saying the same thing about you, that they're okay, but they look at you and like, well, I'm not so sure about everybody else. And this is actually part of a, a larger psychological phenomenon known as the... Um, it's a, known as the better-than-average effect. Earlier uh, this year, there was a meta-study of about 124 papers that were all put together that showed that every single person overestimates their abilities, that every single person thinks that they're better than other folks in other areas. So for instance, most people think they're better than the other average driver out there. We think that we're better as, uh, than our coworkers at our work. We think that we're better when it comes to our schooling or our relationships or dating. We're better at everything in general than other individuals, and we've assessed that for ourselves. Of course, this is a statistical impossibility. You can't be, most of us cannot be better than the average. Right? That's, that's impossible to do. And what ends up happening is that this uh, way of thinking about reality is part of what it means to be human. It's in our DNA that it, to play up our abilities. And it, it, this, this sense of superiority lays hidden in, the, in our culture, I think, under the guise of self-esteem. And what happens here is that is Jesus detects this in the Pharisees, whom everybody else thought were saints and that they were, they were the best people in society. And he looks at this and says, no, I, this is wrong. And so I think it's important for us to realize that in our text today that Jesus, whatever he's calling you to, whatever he's pointing out, he's not asking you just to be more moral or just to be more religious. The Pharisees, uh, compared to us, but really even in that society, they were the most moral, they were the most religious. So whatever Jesus is, t- is telling us, it's not to get more of that. He's also not saying, hey, morals and, and laws, those things don't matter at all. He completely blows up our categories of evaluation and behavior and really gets at the heart of the matter. And so um, we've been doing a series the past couple weeks because I really, uh, the the series that we're in is focusing on deconstructing Phariseeism because I believe that actually we're in the throes right now of a new form of Phariseeism where we weaponize various aspects of our identity and we lob them like grenades at each other, and we create litmus tests of acceptability that we judge other people by, they inevitably fail, we win and they lose. That's what we're doing. And so I think Phariseeism is alive and well right now. It just goes opinion, mainly a low opinion of his own talents and characters, and character. In other words, let him beat himself up and say, oh, that's what it means. Because you can run from God by either breaking his laws or by keeping them. That's what's so insidious. It's because at the end of the day, we will use anything to exalt ourselves. And I think this is where we need to be very clear, that Jesus' solution to to Phariseeism is not 
get rid of the morals and laws. He doesn't say, you know what, guys? I'm just a God of love, and I'm just a teacher who wants people to not care about the laws. Stop being so uptight. No. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't say these laws don't matter. What he says is, how dare you use them the way they're doing it? Don't you dare do that. Go back through the list we just made. Here's what it looks like to exalt yourself. You make unnecessary burdens for others. You create hypocrisy and you virtue signal. But by the way, secular people, non-religious people do the same thing. I know a lot of New Yorkers who create laws and codes and virtue signal. In other words, religiosity is not necessarily the problem here. That you can be just as legalistic. The human heart can be just as legalistic without religion. So the problem isn't religion, it's the human heart. That we're tearing each other apart right now politically and economically and racially by being Pharisees. And it won't just stop by getting rid of of, um, some sort of outward external moral code. We will still have that standard that we are using inside. So the question is, if the answer is not more religion and the answer is not less religion, then what's the answer? And this is the, this is the second point. The only other way that I see in this text about how to live is a philosophy found in verse 12. And it says there, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now notice, this is exactly the opposite to those who exalt themselves will be exalted. And you have to say, okay, then what does that look like? And it's in verse 11, the verse before Jesus says, the greatest among you will need to be the servant. In other words, he points to himself and says, the only way out of a life that exalts yourself is one that doesn't actually do that. That's that's what's actually happening here. He's saying, "I, I want you to have humility, but humility is not something that you can just kind of go out and grasp. And I think a lot of modern people, we, we don't actually understand humility. You can't go and be humble. The minute that you say, I'm humble, look how awesome, you're going to twist it. And screw tape has got you. Real humility is not beating yourself up. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's sim- simply thinking of yourself less. It's not even noticing yourself. It's not even being worried about how you're looking or where you sit or what position you have, or if other people are seeing what you're doing. Frankly, it's, it's, not even, it's not looking down at yourself. It's actually not even looking up at yourself. It's not even concerning self much at all. Uh, somebody told me this once. If you ever were to meet a really humble person, you probably would find that individual just incredibly curious and interested in you. That's what they would be like. They wouldn't be overtly or, you know, uh, overly down on themselves or up on themselves because humility just forgets. And so this is, this is why I think, as I was thinking about this this week, if we're still getting our feelings hurt, if we're always thinking about n- not getting what we deserve, if we're evaluating ourselves and feeling slighted and snubbed, right, if, if our goals and our needs are, all, you know, we're, we're, we're in this sort of cultural space where we're like, I, I, we're inwardly focused right now. It's possible that we're still living to be exalted. That's what, it's possible we are. And so how do you humble yourself, like verse 12 says, 
If the minute that you focus on that, that you'll start thinking about it and you'll ruin it all. How do you do that? That's the million-dollar question. Greg Beal wrote a book recently called Redemptive Reversals where he says one of the most essential themes that you could possibly grasp in the Bible is this, is that any blessing, every blessing, any singular good thing that is received without God, it will eventually turn into a curse. And at the same time, biblically speaking, any curse received with God eventually can become a blessing. And that theme is running throughout the entire Bible. And, and, and um, good things that you think that you have, if you receive them without God, they will eventually kill you and destroy you. And yet at the same time, the bad things that happen to you, if you accept them with Christ, they will turn into a blessing. Look at uh, Hannah in the Bible. She's being mocked her whole life because she couldn't have children. And in that day and age, her identity was completely wrapped up in that. But the curses that she received drove her further into prayer, further into God's love. And if she hadn't suffered in the first place, she probably never would have gotten there. She never would have had to deeply say, everything else in my life has been stripped bare. I'm going to go to you. In fact, she could have, with her suffering, she could have just said, I'm nobody. Nobody loves me. Um, My life's over because I'm not getting what I want. But if that happened too, there would be no transformation. Where her heart changed is when she said, I'm going to go to you, Lord, with everything I have. I'm going to go to you, and I'm going to become more in love with you, not less. And then what happened then is through, in the crucible of the suffering, it turned the curse into a blessing. And what ended up happening is it led led her to, to dedicate her son to God. And without that hurt, without how she became Hannah, she never would have raised Samuel the right way. She never would have, he never would have become the man that he became. He never, which meant he never would have become the man who then would have helped David become the man who he became, which then affected the course of all of human history with the kingdom of God. Now, do you think that when she was going through her hurt, do you think that she understood the point of her suffering? No. Do you think she understood why it was happening? No. Do you think she had any idea about how God might have been using her through her suffering for the betterment of all of humanity? No. She had no idea. Of course she couldn't. But if you and I could somehow know that the curses that you feel right now, that you're going through right now, that somehow that suffering is going to turn into a blessing. We have no idea how. We have no idea when or what it might actually look like. But we have the promised spirit right here. If you knew that, it would transform everything that's going on in your life right now. It would. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. 
If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. It's promised you that we don't know why YouTube we suffer, but we know that it can't be that he doesn't love us because of the cross YouTube. proves that he deeply loves us. And if he can take Jesus' suffering, the curses on him and turn into blessing, you know he can take the curses that are on you and to turn those into blessing as well. Jesus' suffering turned into beauty means your suffering can turn into beauty as well. In him, brought to him, processed in grace, suffering is therefore never meaningless. It turns to blessing because it's the, the same reversal that we see on the cross. All was lost on the cross, but then all was found. All was dark on the cross, and then all became light. Right? All was gone, and now you have it back. Maybe, maybe you never got into the school that you wanted. Maybe you never got the job that you wanted. Maybe you never found that Mr. or Mrs. Right. Maybe you never got your due. All those curses that you felt in Jesus, that curse becomes a blessing. Five years ago, I got into a horrible accident with my daughter, a bike accident. Um, and it was, it was all my fault. She, I didn't get hurt. We flipped. Her foot got stuck in the front spokes of our, of our bike. I didn't secure her the way I should have. I didn't put her in a space where she was safe. We flipped. I was fine. Her ankle broke. She got third-degree burns on her, on, her, on her leg as it was, um, as we slid on the ground. I had never felt like a worse human being than when that happened. But two things came out of that moment. One, I was led into a deep introspection into why I do what I do. Why do I make the actions that I act on? Why was I trying to prove myself? What am I trying to act on? Why am I, acting, why am I doing these things? And I went deep into who I am in a way that I never would have without that. And the second thing that happened is many months later, I eventually heard whispers in my quiet time, in scripture, in the times I had in my prayer life, that despite my flaws, despite my actions, I heard whispers of, I still, I love you. From the God of the universe, the pages of scripture, he was whispering to me that my grace is for this moment in your life. It was meant for these faults right here. I knew about them before all of time, and I died for those faults even before you were born. That's how much I love you. And when that hit me, Tears, a mixture of sadness and joy, but tears. Sadness that I had to put Jesus on the cross and he died for the, all that stuff in me, but joy that he was willing to go there. But God's grace became more evident to me in that moment than I had ever had before. And I would have never have had that if this curse hadn't happened. Friends, this paradigm is all over the Bible. God picks Abel, not Cain. He picks Isaac over Ishmael. He picks Hagar 
right? Sarah over Hagar. He picks Leah over Rachel. It's David over his brothers. It's Jacob over Esau. It's Moses over Aaron. I mean, it just goes on and on because it was supposed to show us the reversal that the way the world acts back then and even today, it was always the oldest who wins and the smartest and the brightest and the ones who deserve the most. And God says, I'm not going to operate that way. And what he did was he picks the smallest and the weakest and the ones with the most flaws. Noah was a drunkard. Moses was always doubting. David was an adulterer. I mean, really flawed people. But when we see how the Bible uses them, that means there's hope for you and me. And if you live for him, now every bad thing, every curse in your life can be turned into a blessing. The world loss turns into kingdom gain. All suffering gives us as a small taste of what he went through, and so it can actually lead us into more worship. God, Jesus, you went through that for me? Wait, you've tasted what I'm going through, but even more so for me? Thank you. I, I look, oh my, how, how did you do this? Why did you do this? If you receive every curse as blessing, even if at first they hurt, even if they're still hurting, even if you're still licking your wounds later on and they're still there, they can refine you and deepen you and change you because your bad things will turn out for good because the terrible things will make you less prone to, to be dependent on this world. We will know our final place can't be this place. However, and this is a big however, if you take good things, if you receive your good things, but receive them without God, you know what it'll do? It will puff you up. You'll start thinking it was because of what you did. It was because of, it, was, it would be because I deserve this. Look how awesome I am. And it will be like sh- eating sugar day in and day out. The candy will rot your teeth. It'll taste good at first, and you'll die. It'll, it'll kill you eventually. It will become a curse. It'll be a blessing at first. Oh, look how great the world rejoices for you and you'll be dead. That is what Jesus is trying to say in this text, that those who exalt themselves, they will be humbled, and those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. If you try to get your identity apart from Jesus, the blessing that you're seeking, it'll turn to ash every single time. You might have fame, you might have fortune, you might have power and influence, but it will crumble either in this life or the next. But receive those bad things in him, and they'll turn into blessing. To end, let me just give you two quick uh, practical applications of this. One, if this is how humility works, if it's received and not, a, and not achieved, sorry, if it's, sorry, if it's um, not achieved but received, same thing, <laughs> when it comes to you, you can be, therefore be less focused on yourself when we're more focused on him. In other words, you can't work on humility. Please don't go out there and say, I'm going to be a humble person today. It's a byproduct of losing your need for your own plans. It's a byproduct of losing to know how your life needs to go right now, how your career needs to go, how your kids need to act. So don't go around looking to not look like you're proud or appear humble. That's impossible. Work on seeing him, seeing how God can take the ultimate bad in the world in Jesus Christ, died on the cross, but doing it for you that means all evil and wrong that has ever happened to you can be changed as well. If he does that with Jesus, 
you know you can do that with you. In other words, the way you seek humility is you seek him. Secondly and lastly, if Jesus took the ultimate curse so that you can now have the ultimate blessing, we need to live our lives now every moment, every hour, minute, space, in that moment, in that, in that. When curses come, remember the ultimate blessing. So before we leave, this is what I want you to do. Ask yourself, what might there be, what, what blessings am I looking to right now that might actually be curses in my life? What, I want you to ask yourself, what might I be looking to to try to save me, to try to make me, ha- ha- to, to, so I feel like I have a blessing, but really it's gonna turn into a curse. And at the same time, what, what curses might be in your life right now? But how can they actually be blessings? If you could do that as you leave, I think it would transform how you lived. What curses are, are on you right now that really could be turned into blessings? And what blessings that are you looking for right now that are actually really curses? Friends, if you knew that our bad things ultimately will turn out for good and our really good things can never be lost and the best is yet to come, if you lived in that space daily, weekly, hourly, then the only thing left in your heart, you know what it is? It's a heart filled with wonder and it's a joy that you have him. And then the only thing left is service out in the world. Don't fall into the other types of Phariseeism that are out there. It feels good to say, yeah, those guys over there, I can't believe it. Don't play that game. Don't go there. It tastes good and it will rot your teeth. Instead, be one who seeks to serve because they've been served. This city needs your boldness more now than ever. Be the one who loves because you've been loved. That will change the world. That will break the cycle. That's what will warm your heart. And you know what? You don't have to show the people that you're doing it. Nobody has to even recognize it. That's not, it's not what it's about. Right? We don't have, we don't do so that others see we do because of what has been done for us. And if we do that, we will move out and bless to the degree that we realize that all of our curses have now been turned into blessing in him. Will you rest in that blessing? Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, it is so good to worship and be together again, to be able to look each other in our eyes and with tears. You've designed us and made us physical, finite beings. And our, your grace needs to come into our lives, Father. Often it happens through hurt, and it does not feel good. It is the worst, it is the worst feeling. I don't wish that on anyone, and yet time and time again you use some of the deepest pains of our lives to bring us closer to you. And yet, we, and we see that all over the Bible. Help us to sit in that space with you, to, to, to cast off the world's versions that, that are telling us, giving us narratives of how it will complete ourselves and it won't be enough because it can only build yourself up by tearing other people down. Father, tear down our own hearts and our own walls and our own issues. And build us back up as creatures who love because we've been loved, who serve because we've been served. Father, move that in profound ways. We pray these things in your name. Amen.
Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.